You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Okay, welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. Ben Epstein is back. Hi, Ben. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm 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 really excited to be talking about live NBA basketball with you, and, and not about the '90s or the early 2000s. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> man. And not that there's anything wrong with that. That's great too. But it is really nice to have uh, some focused actual basketball to talk about. I'll say that the bubble quality has been pretty good. We've actually we we apologize for the delay. We tried recording this on Wednesday. I got knocked out by power by the storms in New York. I'm currently at my in-laws. You're not home either. Uh, I think you're you're back home home where you grew up. So hopefully it works this time. So sorry for the delay. And the power also explains, by the way, why it's been a late content week here on the newsletter. I got a couple big things soon coming down the pike that I'm really looking forward to announcing. But until then, I'm sorry for the lack of content this week. I'll make it up to y'all. Um, it's just been a little bit difficult with the power and being out and being at someone else's house and having multiple people living under one roof. And so hopefully we can get this going. But in the meantime, some really good basketball. I mean, have you been surprised by the quality of play? I know that's something that a number of people are a little surprised about, that the bubble quality – I don't know, maybe it's low expectations or what, but like these have been some really good games. Yeah, I, I I think I set my expectations at the only way we know how to judge long breaks in basketball, you know, which is to say preseason's always crappy, the summer league doesn't really count, it's not the actual teams. And then, you know, on top of that, when you get into the first few weeks of the season, there's always a lot of outliers. Ironically here, probably the team playing the best in the bubble was one of the teams that played best at the beginning of the season too. I'd love to get your thoughts on what the parallel is there on the, on the Phoenix Suns. They were very good in the beginning of the year coming out of a nice long summer and preseason. Uh, and now they look, they look great. They look like a, a fortified team with a dynamic big and an explosive leading guard and a really smart team leading point guard. It, it looks like they have all the pieces. Tell me why Mike, why, why are they the team excelling right now, uh, given the circumstances? I hadn't really thought about the connection with them coming out pretty strong and then playing well because they're two different teams, really. You know, they came out strong with Aaron Baines playing the five, Sarge playing the four, uh, and playing big but sort of spreading it out. Um, now they're really doing it by playing small. Mikel Bridges the one that got away from Philly looks Let him get away. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a catch and release, probably for the sake of his own body. It's good that he's not on the Sixers. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, you're referring to Ben Simmons suffering. By the way, the same injury that Andrew Bynum suffered. Not that that's it ominous is. or anything. Um, yeah, that was great. 
made that connection. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that made you feel good. But, yeah, it's it's a, in a totally different way. Cam Johnson playing instead of Kelly Oubre. They've got three different starters. Remember, 8-2 and two wasn't starting the year with them. Uh, and it's interesting that they've come out strong both ways. Um, I You know, maybe they've been working well together. It does feel like there's something – simple about the way Monty Williams has approached the season. They do what they do, and they do it pretty well. There's not a whole lot of deviation or complication. You know, they, they really pack the paint on defense. They run a lot through Devin Booker on offense, but they don't make him handle the ball as much as he used to because they have Rubio, and so that frees him to score. And it feels like Aiton has really ditched a lot of the post-up stuff, and he's just playing pick and roll, and he's roll, he's shooting a lot. He's shooting threes. Um, so maybe there's something to the simplicity of it, but I honestly think that really, when you look at the talent of these teams that are in the eighth seed race, especially with Jaron Jackson Jr. out now for Memphis, um, I mean, Phoenix may have the, just, they happen to have the most well-rounded team. I mean, they've got, what, the second best player among those, those teams in Booker, who may, I mean... Who's the best player? Lillard. Yeah, Lillard's the best player. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, Lillard is coming off. He just had that amazing game against Denver. But, I mean, before He's then, amazing. yeah, you could have at least made the case that Booker was the best player in the bunch. They've got the best defense, I would say. You know, they're certainly the most well-rounded. I mean, Bridges is probably the best one-on-one defender on any of these teams. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. I mean, I, look, that's, that's fair. I think – I wonder about Booker. I would love to get, like, uh, an anonymous – poll of 100 NBA wing defenders and ask them where Booker lands because I bet he's way high up I think he's one of those guys who the peers are the most afraid of and fear the most in a lot of ways I think you saw that in like pickup basketball last summer with him drawing double teams Um, (laughs) I I just think I think Booker's one of those guys who hasn't been on a good enough team hasn't been a a two-way player in the sense that we he's been a liability on defense and he wasn't a great passer up until this year where he's become a much better passer. But I think Booker's one of those guys who probably would be at the high end of lists and no one would want to guard. I'm talking above guys like Beal, above guys like Clay. He's not as good as Clay all around, but he might be he might be a higher up player when it's all said and done if they make the eight seed and maybe they win a game on you know against the Lakers or something like that. We might go into next year thinking about Devin Booker in a much different stratosphere. Yeah, and I, I mean, he's had a remarkable season. Like, I, yes. I, just a truly outstanding year, I think, shedding a lot of the negative stereotypes that may or may not have been true. I mean, like, he's shown passing ability. You know, it's just hard to notice. Uh, the question of, like, where he ranks on the who is most likely to guard is interesting because you watch that Clipper game that he won at the buzzer. They, Kawhi Leonard could not switch off and pass enough. No, I know. They were running these sort of screening actions to try to get the switch, and Kawhi Leonard was giving it up freely. And then down the stretch, George was the guy who covered Booker. He's a – you know, it's interesting. He's a tough – he's a really tough cover, and it, it feels like they've sort of simplified his role and he's simplified his importance because they have Rubio and because they have a real structure. I mean – Last year, they didn't have a point guard, so he had to be the playmaker. He had to be the scorer. If you look at a lot of his stats, he's dribbling far more often last year. This year, much more off-ball, much more efficient in his movements. He's catching and then going, cutting really sharply. To your point about how these guys are hard to guard, he's also developed that like kind of lean-in foul thing that everybody's got. He can score from all levels, which is really impressive. Um, and he really – you know, he might – 
if the league included bubble games, and maybe even if they didn't, do you? I, I almost wonder if he's got an All NBA case. I mean, he's been yeah. that good this year, and I don't know. It, it, here's a real question that I think I've been struggling with with Booker and what I've been thinking a lot about. And actually, I'm trying to write something on him because I think he's an interesting case study in this. You know. To what degree did Booker suffer from, like, kind of, I don't know, the reverse halo effect of how bad the Suns were, where it's like everything sucks there, so he must be part of the problem, um, and now everything doesn't suck there, and now suddenly he's emergent, he's why. To what degree, like, is this the same Booker, and to what degree is this a different Booker? Because I actually yeah. I actually think it's, it is a different Booker, but not necessarily in the ways that you sort of spelled out earlier. Yeah, so I think when you're not playing um, off the ball with, like, Tyler Eulis, and instead you're playing with Ricky Rubio, that helps a lot. I think that structure, like, to the point you were making earlier about having, like, a team that makes sense around him, and I think Aiton playing much better on defense, deciding that he didn't want to just post up and slam the ball into the ground on offense, doing what he was drafted uh, you know, to do essentially, which was he played a stretch big at Arizona. He showed glimpses of easy three-point range, nice pick and pop off the screen and roll. So, look, you run a pick and roll with a big who's that capable, that athletic, and that that nimble with a guy like Booker who needs an inch. And to your point about how he's gotten more crafty, I've always thought Booker was the best shooter in the NBA, uh, aside from Steph and Clay. I think those two kind of really have their own space. You think so? Yeah, man. I mean, partially because I've been – I was at a uh, – 46 point game I think he had a 44 point game against the Sixers where he didn't he barely missed and we're talking like Booker's shot I think has always been as pure as anyone's I think he's also drawn a lot of extra attention and also I think to you know a a big quality of Booker was he was a little bit more one-dimensional he's driving to the basket way better this year and he's thick man he's a big guy yeah drawing fouls like way more see it's funny I think I think a Booker is more of a scorer than a shooter yeah, well, he's definitely a scorer now. I thought he was. I, I just looked at his, I mean, again, the stroke that he came out of college with. I think he's been one of the best pure shooters in the league since the moment he got in. And he was so young when he did get in. He's still, you know, two years below his, his age bracket, if you will, or his, his class, I should say. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you can get lost in Phoenix. I think you can get lost in a really, really competitive Western Conference. You can get lost when you've had, has he had four coaches? Four, four, oh man, four let's NBA. see, let's see, let's count. Yeah, <laughs> Igor Kokoskov, Earl Watson. Uh, did he? Was he there for Lindsey Hunter? I don't know. Maybe. I think he was there for Lindsey Hunter. Was he there for Alvin Gentry? Yeah, he's had a, he's had yeah, a five or six. <laughs> he's had a, a list of shit. <laughs> right. So I think you can get lost in some of that. You can you can get attributed to some of that as well, and partially to blame. That's fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, you just mentioned how they started the year with. Baines and Saric on the court, you know, compared to the space that he's now playing with, with the freedom to have some spacers himself, guys, to give him, you know, essentially Bridges is a very high-end 3 and D guy, just like snap of a fingers. He's, which he was at Villanova when he won the national yeah. championship twice too, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. He, nothing that, yeah, the Bridges is playing exactly how you'd expect him to play. He's not, not the shooter yet, but man, that guy is going to be a hell of a player. And he's smart. Like, I've always thought that Bridges was a guy who would make – He'd make a team and make a team better for a number of years. That's why when the Sixers drafted him, I was excited about it. I understood the trade they made at the time. They got a first round draft. Well, we'll net out to be a first round, netted out to be a first round draft pick. They traded to the Heat, I believe. Um, 
uh, or something to that effect. One of those picks that's now gone. Maybe the Nets have that pick. I don't know who ended up getting it, but <laughs> look the point it is, uh, right. But the point is, Zaire Smith, who the Sixers did get in the physical sense, um, you know, was allergic to sesame seeds and isn't that good at basketball. And so there's that. So watching Bridges play the way he does, it, it made sense. Obviously, you know, I followed Villanova closely. This is exactly who he was, just with a shorter three point line in college. But yeah, I mean, the Suns are also a team right now that's playing. I coached AAU basketball. You know this in Los Angeles. I ran lots of tournaments and leagues in, in Southern California. This has all the feel right now of just like, oh, shit, that's that hot team. They don't have four Division One players, but they got that one kid who's going to, like, UCLA in, in two years or something. He's like a rising junior, and he's just crushing everyone, leading a team that has, like, pieces around him to what feels like do or die. Phoenix went into this bubble in a much different mental state than uh, – any team in the Eastern Conference, basically, <laughs> you know, they're, they're playing every game to make the playoffs. And not just that, they're building for next season in a big way because of how young they are. So they they went into this in a different mindset, and it showed. Credit to Monty Williams for getting them to play like that, too. Behind all those good AAU teams that have that one real good player, it's usually a creative coach or one that's doing a good job. This is what this feels like, man. It just it has all that vibe. You're playing at four in the afternoon. You're you're the Phoenix Suns and you're playing two o'clock in the afternoon games. The fuck is that? You know, it's like this this is a complete whirlwind. And so the fact that they've been able to play their best ball now, all the credit in the world to Monty Williams and the leadership on the court, which I'll give a lot of credit to, to Ricky Rubio. Yeah, and Rubio's shooting the ball really well as well, which I think he wasn't before. But I mean you look at the team now. I, I just think, again, Booker has had an unbelievable season. I do think he's changed in that um, the efficiency of his movements are so much sharper. So, you know, he he's cutting much more decisively. I think he's much more explosive. The great irony, of course, is that I remember the whole discussion of why didn't he go to Team USA? But meanwhile, he's in the gym working on his core, working on his reads, and working on all that stuff, getting all those reps in. It seems fairly obvious to me in retrospect that it was much smarter to do that than to just play a bunch of games, yep. <laughs> you know, looking at him. Yep. So he he's like kind of – when he's sort of cutting and hesitating and coming off these, these plays, he's so much more – He's so much sharper. His efficiency of movement, his efficiency of steps, his efficiency of dribbles, he's dribbling far less. And some of that is Rubio and some of that is him, you know, and just the passing, that's a huge part of it. But now, I mean, you look at the Suns long term, you know, it's Phoenix. They have a tendency to make some bad decisions. They they just got rid of their G League team to sell it. But you've got a, you've got a great pick and roll tandem. For the future, I mean, Aiton's defense and Aiton's ability, I mean, he's really taken some huge steps forward. It's remarkable. You've got shooting and Cam Johnson. That guy, that looks like that was a good draft pick. That was a pick that everybody criticized at the time. Is he older? Is, De- is Cam Johnson older than Devin Booker? He might be. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to look Devin that Booker's up. Devin Booker's been 23. 23- 23 years old for seven years now. Yeah. By it's the unbelievable. Way, Booker, it, I believe, is on – is locked up as well. They they maxed him out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is Mikael Bridges older than Devin Booker? De- almost definitely. Bridges played three years at Nova. Okay, so so Devin Booker was October '96 for Devin Booker. Um, <laughs> Crazy. Let me look this. Uh, Bridges is August '96. So yeah, Bridges is technically older. And Cam Johnson was March '96. So yeah, Cam Johnson is also older. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it's, it's remarkable. 
and they, they've got the rough outlines of like a really interesting team now. And, and I do agree with you that like Booker is a handful to guard because his trunk is so long and his core is so long. You know, they, yeah. that I think is just really a pain in the ass to have to chase him around and to be able to play him close. You can't really do that. You know, I would, his book, I, I, I agree. So I, 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 my thought is I think the Lakers as a one seed, I mean, obviously the threat of Lillard and McCollum and now having Nurkic healthy Nurkic, yeah. is a huge deal. You saw that uh, in the Denver game. I mean, the, the Lillard put on just an absolute show. He's been great. Now Gary Trent Jr. suddenly can't miss shots. Obviously that team scares you offensively, but I think the best team – where the team that would be the most annoying to play against if you're the Lakers in of these potential teams in the 8-9 chase is Phoenix because it, the combination of Bridges and Sarge I think is going to really get into LeBron. That's not going to be pleasant. I'm not sure who ultimately will guard Booker. They've got options, KCP, Danny Green. I wonder if those guys are big enough. I don't think Danny Green's defense has been as good this year as it was in the past. Uh, So that's a problematic matchup. Um, And, you know, inside I think Davis could have his way. But that combination I think will give them trouble. I think that's going to be a real drag. If that series happens, it would be real drag it out, real physical. I mean, it seems unpleasant. Whereas Portland, I mean – there's obviously the threat that those guys get hot, and that's scary. And I don't know who guards Lillard and McCollum, but defensively, the Lakers, the Blazers just don't offer very much defensively. Yeah, I, I'm with you defensively. I, I do think that the Trailblazers are a team that, had they had Nurkic all year, would have been in the, solidified in, in the in the playoffs already. I, they're just a different physical team, and and yeah. Lillard feeds off of that too. He needs his guy there, and Nurkic is that guy for them. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure which one's the more difficult. I could see a world where Lillard has his way with the mishmash of guards on on the Lakers, man. I mean, let's not act for a second like in a, a matchup with Portland that not having Rondo or Bradley wouldn't matter significantly. It would. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not having Bradley affects them now. They're, they're really looking yeah. like they're stuck in mud. They are. I mean, look, plus there's the whatever is happening off the court with the Lakers that we don't know about. I don't know what that means. It's the most cryptic, like, updates. Like, they're playing poorly. Their offense looks like crap. They're relying on Caruso for 30 minutes a game or 25 minutes a game, which is overextending him. They need Anthony Davis to be the best player on their team because it turns out LeBron is 36 um, and playing – about to play off basketball in August. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's like, there's just, there's little wrinkles that make the Lakers look more susceptible. Do they win the first round against either of those teams? Uh, I would bet my money that they will. Um, but that they, they will look a lot different in the second round if they play a punishing series against, uh, against Phoenix, as opposed to maybe one where they outscore and kind of just uh, out execute being a better team of LeBron and, and Anthony Davis to Portland. Yeah. Now, obviously there's no guarantee that we even get Portland or Phoenix because Memphis, yeah. even though they're dropping like, like crazy, they are still, they do still have an advantage. And we, we do have to not forget about San Antonio, of course. For sure. I believe Utah, we're recording this before on Friday, before they play Utah. I believe Utah's sitting players today. Four, four starters. Yeah. So that's an advantage for San Antonio and they've played pretty well. 
Um, and I mean, technically, New Orleans and Sacramento are still in it too. I mean, New Orleans, the the Williamson stuff is just such a crazy mess, and I don't trust that team. But they do have an easy schedule, so they're not out yet. But I, I do think it's fairly clear to me that the two best teams in the in that mix, one because they're the most balanced in Phoenix on both on def- and they're the toughest defensively, and two Portland, like you said, they basically they now have the team that made the West Finals back in a lot of ways. You know, the, the upgrade from Nurkic to from Whiteside to Nurkic is, like, monumental. Um, Absolutely. So I'm not sure I want either of those teams, but what else is really interesting you in the bubble? I mean, I, do you want to avoid talking about all the Sixers nonsense? Yeah, I mean, look, I, we don't have to talk too long about the Sixers. I don't think there's anything in the Eastern Conference, aside from maybe – uh, the statement that the Bucks made in the second half yesterday to say, like, everyone just pump the brakes for a minute, stop writing our eulogy. We are definitely the favorites in the East still. But with that in mind, I think, like, Toronto has made a, a, a reemergence, if you will. The bubble is nice because it doesn't, there's no market specific. There's no time zone specificity. Like, yes, the Lakers are playing more games that start at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, okay? But it's still, like, there's no 10.30 TNT game right now. The idea that everyone's getting to see the Raptors play, that everyone's getting to see Phoenix play, that everyone's getting to see Portland play at all times of the day, that they're not market dependent, it's on NBA TV or it's on your local whatever, or ESPN or TNT, the coverage is, is pretty, pretty great, um, is I think letting people remember that this Toronto team was really good three months ago. They were really good one year ago. They... They have a lot of pieces right now that frustrate the other Eastern Conference contenders, maybe with the exception of the Bucks, I'm not sure they match up great with the Bucks, but they do match up quite well with with Miami and with and with Boston. They they got Boston tonight. Yeah. Uh, no, they beat Miami. That was a great game. That was a really fun game. It was. Yeah, to your point about like sort of now we all get to see this like. Oh my God, Toronto's defense is so good. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Hello. Right. Have you guys been seeing? I mean, they they have their record despite a lot of injuries this year. They're really tough. Uh, so I'm not totally surprised. What did you think of Miami Milwaukee yesterday? Because I, the, there's this um, growing belief, and remember Miami didn't have Jimmy Butler, but there's this growing belief, and I think there's something to it that you know, the the big fear with Milwaukee will always be this matchup with Miami is a challenge because Miami gets so much of their offense from the three-point line, and Milwaukee is designed to give those up. You saw in the Houston game, Houston shot 61 threes over the weekend, and I believe... And they were open. Almost like 50 of them were open. Yeah, and like I believe... Open. Yeah, I think they, they shot 20-something corner threes. I mean, that's just an absurd number. And so there is this concern... Especially because it does seem, and I have to look at the numbers, but I think this is largely true, that the shoot it's easier to shoot in these gym settings. I think three-point shooting is better because of the open gym element of it. There are no fans. It's the same depth perception, all that. But Miami comes out in that first half, again, no Jimmy Butler, and they just shoot the lights out and they blitz them. And it looks like Milwaukee is chasing ghosts. Mm-hmm. The entire game, it looks like they can't they score so easily, and then the second half, it totally goes the other way, <laughs> and that doesn't happen. What did you? I thought that was an interesting game. Do you? Which half do you think is more representative of what might happen if these two teams play each other in the playoffs? Which it looks like they're slated to do in a potential second round matchup. In the second, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the second half, the second half, I. 
I have a little more confidence, especially Milwaukee's still adding players right now. Bledsoe just came back. They're still, I believe, without Connaughton, right? Connaughton played last. No, Connaughton played. Just the first game back, yeah? Yeah, also the first thing back. He actually played a lot of minutes. I think he was he was one of their key players in that game. Yeah, and so I, I think of, like, Milwaukee, probably, if we talked about Phoenix came into this bubble with the most to play for, or Phoenix, San Antonio, the teams who are, quite honestly, playing the best, Portland, um, they had the most to play for. Milwaukee's on the opposite end of that spectrum. They had the least to play for. They had multiple key pieces missing, uh, but Brooke Lopez didn't play yesterday. No, he played. Robin. He, Robin didn't play, but I, I think that was coach's decision. Right, and then two games ago, Brooke sat out. Like, they're, they're still piecing together their team. Um, and so I, I would argue that the second half is more indicative of how I feel like a series would go there. The first half is how Miami beats them. And, like, the first half is why Miami's difficult to play against. It's the same first half. That's why they beat the Celtics the other night. Um, the, the, the Heat have, like, a never-ending slew of guys who can shoot both from off the dribble, pull up three, uh, and, and uh, catch threes. Um, it would appear to me that the Heat also, and this is, like, weird, but they seem to gain confidence when Jimmy Butler doesn't play. I don't know what that's about. But they really do seem to, like, lock in in a pretty, like, you wouldn't realize they're missing their quote-unquote best player when Jimmy doesn't play. It's not like they changed the way they play either. And part of it's because Jimmy's a reluctant three-point shooter. So that's a big difference. When they, when they start basically bam and then four guys who can shoot threes, that, that, that's not you know necessarily a detracting component against a team like the Bucks. Jimmy's a great player. They'd be better off to have him playing and figuring out how to make that work. But I do think it enhances their ability to get off more threes. You saw in the first half. And also like, and this is the other thing we're trying to figure out. We have a small sample size, and you kind of hit on it, but, like, playing in the same gym, no fans, uh, every actually, same gym every game or one of the two or three, whatever it is, uh, no fans, the ability to kind of – you're practicing on these courts, you're locking in, there's – the depth perception feels like it's really strong. Got the corner three right now, if you watch Houston play, it's, like, it's actually called the Jeff Green three. Um, <laughs> is, yeah, or the Tucker three um, is to say that, like, I imagine sports psychologists everywhere are probably raising their rates and pulling out their hair, talking about how valuable they are to these guys, because obviously I'd imagine some kind of visualization, like it's just you in the gym, you're alone. But what about the virtual fans? They're there to distract. You you mean the the virtual fans who are on like a three second delay? So it's completely the dumbest thing in the whole world. (laughs) I I absolutely hate it. I think it's kind of funny. Virtual fans. I think baseball's virtual fans are amazing because it's just their cart. They're like, you know, cutouts essentially or, or whatever that are just sitting there. And it's no different than regular baseball. It's just like, oh, it's, you know, a bunch of you know, cardboard cutouts. So your point about the shooting, doesn't that by logic have a, doesn't that, isn't that bad for Milwaukee because they give up so many of those threes? Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. So like, if this proves to be that the factors that Milwaukee could not handle have enhanced the way to beat them, that would prove to be, I'd be upset if I were them, but also, you know, you got to roll with the punches a little bit here. Maybe adjust your defense a little bit, but they are built, as you mentioned, like to give up threes. I mean, they, they're not going to make Robin and Brooke uh, quicker. They're, they're not going to, you know, Middleton's a, a, a been playing actually pretty well in the bubble, I think. And, and he's the type of guy who like, if the Bucks are going to win the East and win the championship, the whole world's going to have to know that, that, you know, Middleton is a Chris Middleton's a, a star. Yeah, you know, not just another guy because they don't have enough, man. You watch them play a team like Miami or even a team like Toronto, 
Uh, or like the other day against Houston, and you're like, if you didn't know the records, you would have a hard time being convinced that the Bucks are the team who has run away with one of the conferences. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I wrote last week. I mean, the really important question is, is Chris Middleton's heater going to continue? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you said, who's the best shooter? Devin Booker is the best shooter outside of Clay and Seth. Like, I'd argue that Chris Middleton might be just in terms of the types, the variety of shots. And he had it rolling against Miami, and that was a huge difference. What's interesting about the Miami versus Houston comparison is that while both teams shot a ton of threes, they do so in – completely opposite ways. I mean, Houston spaces you out, never moves, drives, waits for you to help off the corner and makes that pass every time. Miami uses it with Duncan Robinson just running all over the place, and they use the threat of him to open up other opportunities. So you're so worried about jumping out to prevent him from getting a three that someone else will get open, and all this dizzying movement will create all this space. So they're, they're getting these threes off in a completely opposite way from how Houston is. And I think by the second half, the Bucks did a better job of, look, let's bump Duncan Robinson a little bit. Let's stay locked and trailed to him. Wes Matthews and Connaughton did a better job. And suddenly those opportunities dried up a little bit more. And so I think it's obviously a huge concern because the the Adebayo Robinson two man game is really tough. What I think Miami's going to have trouble with running into is they've got some really great spacers and they've got some really not great spacers and they don't have a whole lot in between. So in almost every lineup that you could possibly construct, you're going to need to have two of Butler, Adebayo, Jay Crowder, and Iguodala out on the court. Obviously, last night without Butler, that takes away one. So they're able to run out some more shooting lineups. I mean, Olenek is going to have a huge role in that series, you would imagine. Um, yeah. Crowder was hitting his shots, and Iguodala played a little bit of five, and he was terrific. Um, there were a lot of Tyler Hero, but if you're running out – like, Adebayo had a really poor game. Like, Adebayo did not play well. Um, I think he played 21 minutes, was 2 of 10. They seemed to play really well with him out of the game. So if you're Miami and you're trying this strategy of, like, let's use Duncan Robinson to just throw the Bucks all over the place, get them out of their shell, which, again, is totally different from how Houston does it. With It's, it's all about the drive and kick for Houston. For Miami, it's all about their movement. I think it will be a challenge for them because they're going to need to play two of those, like, not great shooters. You know, Crowder, Jay Crowder is making his shots now. Iguodala in rhythm will shoot. Butler, we talked about how reluctant he is from three this year. Uh, and Adebayo doesn't have three-point range really at all, and he's the handoff guy. You would think that at, at, in a playoff series, in a sustained series, you, the Bucks. Even a team that doesn't adjust the way the Bucks don't, that's their reputation. You would think that they would position their help defenders better off the non-shooters where, and if they don't, and Miami goes more offense, then, I mean, you saw how well Giannis played last night just getting to the cup. Like, Miami just doesn't have the size to be able to do that. It felt like when the Sixers play, and a lot of, Embiid has huge games against Miami. It's one of the reasons why I still think it's an interestingly good matchup for the Sixers. Even, I mean, in a world where Simmons exists still, but um, big a big can have his way, uh, uh, and Giannis is a big. I mean, there's, the Heat have very little to put in his way. He's a lot bigger than Bam, and Kelly Olynyk is not a is a charge taker, not a rim protector. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, Bam should match up well with Giannis, but the the problem is, I mean, this is why I'm curious about Butler, because I would think that if Butler is playing, Middleton doesn't go off like he did last night. I mean, he couldn't miss. He was getting whatever he wanted. In, train, in the secondary break, Miami does load up really well, but Giannis was able to read and, like, force them to load up one way, and he had, he had like, maybe eight or ten points just on spin moves going back the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that was just really smart. Um, and, you know, I think that will be better with Butler in the game because even if Butler Butler's a better sort of help defender as well. But this is, a, I think, the dilemma Miami faces, which is that if they really want to spread Miami out – or Milwaukee out in a series, they, they're going to have to play offense-heavy lineups, and they definitely can do that. But then they lose it on – suffer on defense, or they have yeah. to play at least two of the four players I mentioned. And over time, I suspect that Milwaukee will adjust so that they're loading off those guys and not Kelly Olenek and of the world. So I think it would be an interesting matchup, but I do – I would favor Milwaukee. I, I do wonder – Generally about Milwaukee's giving up threes, I, I think the way Houston got their threes is probably a more effective way to get threes in the long run than Miami's, and I just wonder if that's the kind of team that could beat them. Um, you, know, you say Toronto doesn't match up well with them. They, they might not just because they don't have enough scoring, but Toronto has ways to get three-point shots off, and Boston, who lost to Milwaukee, Boston has really not played that well, honestly, in the bubble. They haven't. Uh, I mean, but, they played well against the Nets, but yeah, so other than that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, th- it, it, I think it still remains to be seen whether, like, this environment helps or hurts Milwaukee. It probably doesn't help them, to your point. But I, I just don't know. I, I think that – I'm not sure. I think they're vulnerable, but I'm not entirely sure unless it's, like, Houston again. <laughs> like, who's the team that's vulnerable that's going to beat them? Um, so I would still favor them. I, I do think it uh, – I would have more concerns about their offense than their defense. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm ready to see meaningful basketball in the Eastern Conference, and that's not going to happen for a few more weeks. And so that's a big part of this too is that the conferences are just playing for so much different. Quite literally, the, the teams are – you know, the amount of teams and the amount of teams playing for something, the, the NBA restarted – with very different weighting in the conferences. And so, yeah, I don't, Milwaukee's been able to slow roll their players back. Like they, they've been able to slow roll minutes. They sat against the Nets. Giannis played half the first six, 16 minutes in the first half and nothing the rest of the game, right? Like this isn't serious yet for them. I hope that they're using this as a regular preseason or whatever to relaunch themselves into a position where they can win the Eastern conference. Cause they were the best team by a mile this year in the Eastern conference for the entire season. Um, I mean, Toronto is pretty good too, but but a distance behind. But yeah, I, I, I'm ready to have the NBA playoffs start for a number of reasons, but mostly because I, there's more playoff games than maybe there should be, or play in games or whatever here. This It feels like they adjusted the West to add the Pelicans, which created more games, and, and now all of a sudden i got to watch the skeleton of the Nets, the fucking Wizards still playing. Hey, 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 hey. Troy Brown Jr., is worth watching. Yeah, so we have the Wizards still playing basketball who are now uh, behind the Charlotte Hornets. Yeah, mission accomplished. Good job, good job, good job, Wizards. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, obviously it was due to TV money, ultimately, that they're doing this. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, again, to go back to Milwaukee, I just I think that the real key is not their defense, but their offense. You know, is, can they can they score in these type possessions? And I think it requires Chris Middleton, like I wrote on the newsletter, to continue to shoot the lights out. Um, I was very disturbed by how they handled the Rockets. Um, that scared me um, with the way they did that. And I think against the Heat, you you would have to. If they play that series, they would need to target Robinson on defense, and I didn't see any evidence of that. Uh, so that that's what I would worry about. I think, uh, and that's why I mean Toronto would be another really interesting matchup in pre-shutdown. I mean, they had that game. I thought that was really interesting in Toronto, where Milwaukee got just enough, and Toronto just couldn't score enough, and that's how Milwaukee won that game. But no, I'd be worried about the offense, and and that was the problem last year. And you know, they really have to make sure it gets better. I, that's where I would be scared. Mike, let me ask you a question. Yeah, so uh, two questions. P- prior to the um, pause in the season, who did you think the NBA Finals matchup was going to be? Uh, Milwaukee Clippers. And I only say Clippers because the Clippers were a tougher matchup for the Lakers. I thought there's a tic-tac-toe thing going on where the Clippers would beat the Lakers, the Bucks would beat the Clippers, but the Lakers would beat the Bucks. Hmm. And then do you still think that's the the most likely prospective finals matchup now? Probably. I I would say probably. And to be honest, I'm not really in love with how the Clippers are playing either, but I can't tell if that's just, again, experimenting. They're a team that, like you said, they've had a lot of absences in and out of the bubble. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. There's something off about the way they play. I just don't think they have enough guys that are really good off the ball. So it looks like their game is simple. And Kawhi Leonard just is not playing that great. He played better against Dallas. Um, but then the Lakers aren't playing great either, so I don't know. Um, I don't know if enough has changed for me to really fix it. I, I'm a little more intrigued by Houston in this setup, and I think I'm a little more intrigued by the East field. Mm. But I don't – again, I'm not sure who that team is. I mean, I'm very curious to watch Toronto and Boston because my, my – my read on Toronto continues to be, despite the way they're playing, that their defense is vicious and probably better suited to this bubble setting because it's so off-putting. Mm-hmm. But I still worry that they about their scoring, uh, especially in half-court situations. Now, that has not necessarily been a problem because against Miami, Van Fleet was great. Because um, <laughs> yeah. Miami, I think, has a trouble defending two guards at once. Uh so I, I still worry that they don't have enough scoring, but they might. It might not matter. I mean, all these teams have flaws, and it's so it's tough. Um, so I'm really yeah. curious to see this Boston matchup because Boston does not play well. But I do think, in theory, Boston has a kind of team that sh- Toronto should be able to that should be able to beat Toronto. But it hasn't necessarily happened. So I don't know. I, I said that I'm intrigued by Miami because I think even though they didn't Butler shooting is an issue, I think Butler is the kind of player that can take over a game. Uh, in a way that others can't. So uh, probably a little bit more tilted to the field, but not terribly so. And then is there a specific team? You mentioned Houston a couple times already, but in the Western Conference that you think could be a disruptor to that Los Angeles uh, kind of hierarchy? It's. I think it's just got to be Houston, really, is the only team at this point. It, no, no thunder in there for you? Well, they're playing great, but I think they have a similar issue to Toronto in that I, I think scoring is going to be a real challenge in the playoffs because I mean nobody is going to guard Lou Dort. 
And so they're going to be playing four on five in a lot of these situations. Their bench doesn't have a ton of scoring. I have tons of respect for what they've done. I also think they're a little small, so if they come up uh, against the wrong matchup where they've got to guard a big wing, I think that's really going to be trouble. Uh, I don't think they match up well with the Clippers. I think they do match up well with the Lakers. Um, I just think, think scoring is going to be a chore for them. I mean, generally speaking, in most playoff games, it it hurts the teams actually that have fewer scoring options. That's why I'm more uh, that that would be the reason I worry about the Bucks because you know and so that the, if you have more ways to score, that's generally better in the playoffs. If you have guys who are self checks or you don't have you know great volume scores, I I think uh, that is a challenge. So. I think Oklahoma City is a fun disruptor, but I, I, I mean, I think the Lakers don't want to see them, but I, I don't think they're a real threat to go far. Houston, on the other hand, they've got the scorers, they've got the space. Much of their game will rely on how many shots they hit from the perimeter, and if this is a shooter's gym, that helps them. Uh, and they've been playing really great ball so far. Harden, I think, has been probably the best player in the bubble. I know he had a rough game against Dallas, or was it Dallas he had a rough game against? He had one really rough game, I remember. Um, but I think it's... You also, I mean, you also eliminate some of the mental elements that maybe has flummoxed hard in the past. The pressure moments, it's now more of an open gym setting. Where he's the god. He's the god of open gyms, too. Like, in Los Angeles, he is revered in the summertime. It's like shit hardens coming. I mean, he's yeah, essentially without referees uh, to be swayed, which is another thing, like across all of the sports right now, aside from baseball, which is just subjective on a moment-to-moment basis because the umpire controls everything. But in hockey and, and basketball, you're just getting a much more even refereeing situation. Probably the, the group that's swayed the most by, by fans would be refs, I think we could argue, even more so than players. Yeah, although, you know, fouls are, fouls are way up in the bubble. So oh, I mean, way up, too. Because refs aren't going to get yelled at by fans. It's uh, penalties are way up in hockey too. The, the Capitals had four back to back to back to back penalties yesterday in the third period um, against Flyers. Like the, the the penalties are up because refs are able to be completely as much as possible objective about the rules and not have to worry about I think the the screaming and the the you know uh, amplification of right or wrong from from the opposing uh, fans. And I think like, I definitely think you're seeing to some extent, the psychology of fans and what it means to the sport playing out uh, in a really nice little, like, again, I was going to use the word test tube, but in a bubble. <laughs> yeah. I, you would think too, that that would benefit players who drive a lot and force a lot of contact because sure. more of those calls are being made. I think one part because officials can hear the contact more. That was, I think someone made, I forget who made that point, but that was an interesting one. One part that, you know, your defensive rotations are like maybe a beat off uh, from not playing for so long. So I think that's benefited, you know, whistle wise and that's good for Houston. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then look, the other thing is Houston's a team that is significantly different than they were when the year started. They were still figuring out the, the way that their pieces fit together. It wasn't like they got Robert Covington in, you know, uh, October. Um, And so I I just, you know, we're just seeing a completely different rhythm to where teams are peaking and and how they're figuring out their, you know, the new look roster they have in a lot of ways, um, both with injuries and with the fact that like with the the trade 
deadline happened in February, and then the season ended in early March. So yeah, you know, there's just timelines to this that are making things and making more variables, um, which you know would hopefully lead to more volatility, less chalk in the in the playoffs eventually. But you know, uh, do you think there'll be less chalk? I, I think there'll be more chalk because there won't be the home court factor. Uh but you, you think that I think that would lead to more potential volatility, given that the home teams that are so good at home, and usually that corresponds with, aside from the Sixers, if you're very, very, very good at home, you probably have one of the best records in your conference, like you know, the Bucks and the Lakers. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how it plays out. I, I guess I'm I'm interested to see what no travel, no uh, home away, um, you know, Matt, what that means. No going out and like, oh, shit, they're playing Miami. The Sixers look lethargic. Why does that look, you know, none of that. Right. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see you. Uh, and again, it's just a snapshot. It doesn't pretend to anything in the future unless, you know, the entire next season's in a bubble, which could very well be the case. I mean, I, that we could be barking up that tree, in which case we're going to get a lot of learnings right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think the other thing that's like stood out, at least to me, and this is more of just like visually watching, but like you, we, we're getting a better, uh, for guys like you, Mike, who want to like study every little part of the game and see interaction on the bench, how the coaches communicate. Like uh, it, it's been a lot more of a snapshot into the game itself with all the new camera angles. Now I know purists don't like it because they can't see all 10 players at all times, but I like the fact that I can basically read everyone's lips on the court. And then I can hear lots of small talk and that I can see the way that Popovich is interacting with his assistant coaches and his bench in a much more close proximity due to the cameras being closer and having more of them. So I, I'm kind of enjoying the visual experience, the audio uh, audio experience uh, of the NBA thus far. Um, and that's completely separate from the actual game itself. I think uh, I would enjoy it more if every fifth word wasn't a curse word and thus you had that like five, two seconds of like blank sound around the basket. Um, and I'd also like it more if like the league would lighten up a little bit and show us more strategy. I, you watch these yeah. WNBA games, for example, and there's just the mic'd up segments really have much more chalk talk. And I don't quite understand why we don't get more of that on this level. I mean, I think it could be better. Um, you know, it, one other thing, it's, it's going to be really interesting. You know, the playoffs, the, the old cliche that the playoffs are different than the regular season, I think ultimately has always come down to you're playing one team seven times instead of 30 teams one time. And that sounds really simple, but you, know, you just can really lock in on that one team's strengths and weaknesses over the course of a series. And, you know, it, that's just a very different sort of rhythm than what you do in the regular season. Now you get that on a really extreme level because not only can you lock in on them from game to game, but the games are, there's no travel. There are fewer distractions that are distract, that are kind of distracting you from that process. So I wonder if we're going to see more extreme results or less extreme results. In other words, are we going to see more quick series because the momentum will shift so quickly and, there's fewer forces that could alter it, or are we going to see more balance because there's more of an ability to make adjustments and to execute them? And then you also have the factor of all the players are all hanging out together during between right, games right. in a series. That's I don't know, I'm excited for that. 
Dude, that's the AAU part, by the way. Like, that's the most AAU part about this all. Is like, you're just with the rest of the guys. Like, it's just the rest of the friends staying at, like, the hotel or the rest of the team staying at the hotel in Vegas or wherever. Um, that, that's certainly part of this. And, like, I, I think we'd be remiss to say, like, how, how secretive do you think the coaches have to be about things right now, right? Like, I'd imagine that there's a whole other layer of, like, trying to not have your game plan or try not to have your, like, practices be seen or all these different things that like I wouldn't have even thought about when teams are doing this all at their own facilities. I'm sure guys like Popovich are taking significant steps in that direction. Yeah. Or they're just like, I don't really, what, what, what's <laughs> great. They see the game plan. Like, I mean, everybody yeah. sees everything. Is it be interesting? I don't know. That's a good question. Real quick before we go, what's, uh, what's your favorite game of the bubble been so far? Uh, favorite game in the bubble. Uh, probably, uh, I think the first Clippers-Lakers game, because it actually felt like it mattered. That was probably the only game that I watched so far where I was like, oh, these teams are playing for something that's going to probably matter more in like a month and a half. Like it felt like they didn't try to sugarcoat it. They both – it was a slugfest. It felt a lot like the Christmas Day game in a lot of ways, which was a very highly uh, anticipated and, and hard-fought game. So that was probably my – and that was also like the first or second game. Um I I also really enjoyed the Sacramento Mavericks game from like two, three days ago, which was probably the worst loss of any of the teams so far. Kings needed that game super badly. Had it and then kind of just blew it in the right Kings fashion. But that was a fun game too. Yeah, I, very poor coaching, I thought, down the stretch. Yeah, by Sacramento. Poor coaching. I mean, you, yes. I, I, uh, I actually tried something out there where I like talked over the action and tried to record it on that game, and maybe I'll put it on the blog. I don't know. I only did it for three quarters. And it went, they were both trying to attack like sort of the bad matchup, but for some reason Sacramento thought that Maxi Kleba on a switch was a bad matchup. And so they kept going at it, and they kept failing. It was just baffling, whereas Sacramento was just targeting – Bielitsa and getting wherever they want is, yeah, poor coaching. I don't know what Dallas was targeting Bielitsa. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, no, no, yeah. over and over. You're right. You're yeah, right. Bielitsa's a nice offensive player. He's just such a liability on defense. Also, crazy to see that Buddy Heald is barely a part of that team anymore. I wonder where he will land. Yeah he, yeah, he didn't play in the fourth quarter and then suddenly came back in overtime. I mean, there's it seems like there's something going on with him and Luke Walton where they don't they don't see eye to eye. Um, I mean, it's a tricky situation because they also have Bogdanovich and they have very similar games and, you know, things that the Kings maybe should have thought through. But, you know, alas. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, yeah. I was in support of that Buddy extension because he, it's hard. Shooting is such a big deal, especially volume, yeah. accurate shooting. But it it does seem like when Heel gets in the game nowadays, like he's literally only focused on one thing. Yeah. He's not playing the game. And there was a big disagreement, I remember, late in that game. Uh, between him about a defensive rotation, between him and the assistant coach, him and Fox, uh, they they got into it at one point. I remember thinking it was kind of strange. And rewatching the play, it looked like Heald was just so focused on the ball and not Xing out on the closeout. And then the next play down, of course, Heald dribbles like sixty times and shoots. And that 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 was like an indication to me that something's off. Um, the best game I saw, I would probably say, is the Portland Memphis game to start things off. You talk that about great game. You talk right. about stakes. Right. I mean, you could feel the stakes in that one. That was a great game. And then I also really like the Phoenix Clippers game. Um, although I think the Clippers are kind of dogging in that one. Uh, that was really highly pl- 
highly played, uh, really well done. And, you know, intellectually, like, that Bucks rocket scheme was probably the strangest game I've seen in a really long time. Just in terms of what, what the Bucks were willing to give up and how the two teams were playing each other. It was just... What the Bucks are willing to give up, the thing that the Rockets are trying to get. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's a, that's arguably not the best game plan. Um, <laughs> you know, I, is there any, I want to have two more questions for you. I wrote, wrote these down. Um, we haven't mentioned TJ Warren yet. I do want to get your like X's and O's take on what he's doing differently right now. He's always been a good scorer. No one's ever doubted TJ Warren's ability to get buckets, but are you seeing anything different for him? And then, and then name a guy right now in the bubble who you probably didn't have on your radar. And by you, I mean the average NBA fan who right now, you know, people should be focusing on and why. Like, who's the guy who stood out for you who isn't necessarily a household name, who isn't TJ Warren, because I'd argue that he's probably that guy. Yeah, I don't know if I'm seeing a whole lot that's so so different about how TJ Warren is playing. I think he has always had a really diverse offensive game, and he's making shots. And I think the Pacers, on account of not having Sabonis, have downsized, and so he's in slightly more favorable matchups in space, um, and he's getting more chances. I mean, at least I thought the, the Suns really locked him up the other yesterday. Mikel Bridges did a great job. Um, and he also, in his first game, the 53-pointer, was against the Sixers team that really didn't have a good plan for defending him because he does so much of his damage away from the hoop. So I, I think those are all factors. I mean, he he's a really good player. T.J. Warren, and offensively, he's improved defensively, and Indiana does a great job with these types of players. Uh, so, uh, and your second question is, who's someone that we should that I'm focusing more on that I didn't expect to? Uh, Michael Porter Jr. Yes, good one, good one. I think in the short term, Denver just had so much rotation challenges that it's really hard to get a handle on how they're going to do this year, but. I mean, the, the type of player that team is missing is the type of player that Porter is. I mean, they're probably Denver's the best team record-wise that does not have that sort of tall uh, – I forget what I called them in the Middleton post. Those sort of tall, do-everything wing player that takes up the bulk of the offense. You know, they're one of the few teams that doesn't have that, and that's becoming a prerequisite for contention. Well – Maybe Michael, that's the maybe Michael Porter is that guy, and it is funny watching because he has he is just doing his own thing. Like you can tell why he hasn't played just because he he literally just sort of has like this nose for the ball that can be detrimental sometimes. Like he's he's always trying to shoot, always trying to cut to get open, and he's always trying to you know come to the ball. And they have this tight structure. There is a little bit of it reminds me a little bit of like young McGrady with Toronto. <laughs> Dude, totally. He actually shoots a little like him, too. It's kind of always a little bit of a fade. can kind of get any shot he wants off. Yeah, biomechanical issues potentially with his back. Yeah, yep. I'm fascinated by Michael uh, Porter Jr., man, because, like, he, he was the, the guy. I mean, if we had – we go back to, like, uh, one of our podcasts from three years ago or whatever, and, ha- do we, you know, where we had Ricky uh, on and, like – I'm sure Ricky told us how great Michael Porter Jr. was, right? Like, I know he told us how dynamic this kid could be and that it was weird he was going to Missouri and all this stuff, right? Um, I, I still look at him and I think, well, that guy probably could have been a top three, especially when he 
is uh, moving in transition and pulling up from three and knocking down shots. And that's, a, that's you know, that's top three draft pick stuff. I'm also super intrigued by Bull Bull. I, I'm, I can't not be fixated on this dude. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm, I'm envious of the way the Nuggets have gone about building their roster of just interesting guys. They need to get Jamal Murray back um, and healthy, like, you could tell the wear and tear of, of uh, not having him and Harris as well uh, has mattered. Like they've been getting torched yesterday. They got absolutely just lit up by Dame, but, but I'm not sure if there's much anyone can do about that sometimes, but I, I'm, I'm very interested to see where Michael Porter Jr.'s game goes. He's definitely a guy who I think I was texting you about this the other day, where you're watching, you're like, shit, this guy's could he could be 30 a game in the NBA uh, easily. Like with smooth game. Um, and, and we'll see. He's definitely in a good position. He's got a center who wants to pass him the ball uh, and, and ultimately low expectations of not being a top three draft pick, which probably helps. It would help if he had maybe some better views on how yeah, the world. infections, diseases work and was not a cons- I, did not have his political views that he had, but whatever. That's a whole separate... I think I, think I saw Andrew Sharp tweeted something like, Oh no, Michael Porter Jr. is going to win like or be like first team NBA for the next ten years and get canceled every six weeks, uh, which, <laughs> uh, which I thought was pretty funny. Oh I mean, man, yeah, he's he's an idiot. I would be remiss too. Like I know that like I don't think what Jonathan Isaac said is close to the same level uh, of what Porter said. I think if anything, he tried to articulate maybe just a little bit of a misfounded view as opposed to something that was conspiratorial or, or ultimately supposed to, you know, troll people. I do feel really, really badly for, for Jonathan Isaac. It feels like he's just getting only big injuries, only stuff that's six to eight months, uh, only stuff that's going to hold him back physically. And he is such a physical freak on the court. So I, I feel, I feel for him of the injuries so far, Jaron Jackson Jr., was another guy who I think the world was starting to get exposed to a little bit in this bubble of like, this cat could be really, really good. Um, and he's super young too. Like his ceiling could be one of the best shooting power forwards in the league. His defense and rebounding will potentially come along down the road. Tough to see him go down. And then, you know, Ben Simmons getting hurt too. <laughs> you know, a weird injury that he essentially didn't do anything. And then it kind of just slipped out. Um, he was just passing the ball into the post um, from, from three point line. Um, and so these injuries are starting to add up. I hope I hope that none of the injuries occur uh, moving forward to, to the teams who actually have a chance to win the title. And that includes my stupid Sixers, who probably didn't have much of a chance um, to win the title, but but would have made at least for a fun first round uh, against you know the Heat uh, or Celtics. Are we sure? We're sure he's not coming back. We don't know. I mean, look, I, I'll say this: the last thing in the world the Sixers are, should do, especially because. Just like Jonathan Isaac, um, Simmons was coming off another injury this year, too. So was Jackson. Uh, and, and so was Jackson. That's right. That's right. You're right. You're right. I forgot about I mean, that. I mean, I don't know. To me, like, that's that's like a screaming red flag. I mean, the the injuries that they all suffered seemed like biomechanical injuries. If you watch the way Isaac hops in the lane and his knee buckles, by the way, same knee that he already had the issue on, It's it looks exactly like Derrick Rose tearing his ACL. It's the same movement pattern. And yeah, it, is. it is. And I think it's just I just think it's nuts to say that like the Magic one way or the other made a good or bad decision to let him play 
through this. I just think it's nuts to say, yeah, that was just an unlucky, unlucky situation, and you can't blame the Magic for playing him in that blowout and for bringing him back the way they did. They follow all the protocols. Like, I'm sorry, you just can't. These teams don't get the benefit of the doubt for that, you know, especially, yeah. especially given what the Magic had to play for. And you know, Jack, at least Memphis had a lot more to play for than Orlando did, and I, it's just a matter of we don't know. Like, I mean. It, it, I think we have to stop treating non-contact injuries as total flukes. You have to look at, yeah, you have to look at these movement patterns in a way that I think most people can't do. And so we default to like, well, we don't know. It's a lot like sort of the Bill James fog. You see the fog and you assume that there's no trend, but it may just mean that, you know, there's something there you can't see. I think about that a lot with these non-contact injuries. I think there's very much something going on with the biomechanics of these players that these teams should be able to see, but don't know how to see. And we certainly don't know how to see. It's why I had Coleman Ayers on last week on the pod. And it's why I think this is an area we as a fan need to get smarter with, but it would make total sense. I mean, Simmons, what, what causes these sort of non-contact injuries is like a rapid ramp up in activity after a long layoff. That's what these guys had. And in I and he had a really long one. You know, Ben Ben hadn't played for months because of his back. And neither had Isaac and neither had Jackson. Yep. So you just have to watch out for this stuff. And I, I think, especially if it's the same injury, I think there's got to be a lot of questions raised about, like, what sort of checking in was being done to make sure that Isaac's entire – everything about that was to make not just the knee stronger but the rest of the body stronger. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. certainly That's the right. That's right. Yeah, and certainly the Sixers have not earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to injury sort of treatment and prevention. So, I don't know. To me, like, these are questions that we do need to be asking. Like, I mean, I, I think there's a weird reluctance on the part of some people to to do that. I think it's just because it, I think it's a tricky thing to you, to say with any certainty. So I think a lot of people pretend that it doesn't exist, The this factor, that it is all flukes. And that's just not the case. There, we have to be able to smartly say, you know, there might have been a problem with his movement patterns. Like, retroactively, maybe it's – let's look at how he was moving and how his knee was buckling in. I mean, because on Isaac's case, you look at it, you see it. The knee is buckling so badly. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's so was, much – terrible. There's so much of that. And then that happens because you're putting so much force on a cut that your body can't handle. I mean, I don't know. Like, it, it, it's so unfortunate. I mean, it's a tough situation because you wouldn't tell the Grizzlies, oh, you should sit Jaron Jackson Jr. more, and that opens up other problems potentially. But I think we need to be very cautious of players who were off before the bubble and then have come back and now are playing heavy minutes. I mean, that's why that's why Victor Oladipo was going to play and then not going to play. And, you know, the, these are real serious concerns, and I think they're going to get more serious. Um, so. At least the Sixers will be honest, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. This also speaks to why I think broadcasts need to have biomechanics experts on them because I just think this is a much bigger part of the game than people realize, and there's just not enough education on this. You know, not yeah. just for injury prevention, but also to be able to explain why guys explode so quickly, why guys are able to get past. Um, you know, I think it would be so cool to have, like, I mean, frankly, someone like Coleman or someone like him in that space that could be contributing to these broadcasts and show they have all those slow motion replays. Like, why not show, like, kind of in detail, like, here's what the foot is doing, here's what the knee is doing that allows these sorts of things to happen. I think that would make us all much smarter. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Look, they have in in other sports, you know, we've been able to analyze 
to uh, to the millimeter, you know, uh, a release of a pitcher in baseball uh, and what that means, you know, for their prospective longevity of their elbow or shoulder, right? Little things like that. And, and ultimately correct guys so that they don't re-injure it. Like Matt Harvey's not nearly as good of a pitcher anymore as he used to be, but he hasn't had another Tommy John surgery since he changed the biomechanics of how he pitches. Thinking about basketball in that sense is probably smart. You know, what am I doing that's going to increase or decrease my chances of, of, a, of a blowout? Um, you know, or what type of repetitious thing am I doing that's incorrect that's going to eventually lead to something else breaking down? I, I think about that all the time as someone who probably didn't do the right things physically uh, in tennis or basketball in my career, and that's why I tore my Achilles. You know, I had wear and tear in one very acute position on you know, my left Achilles. And so I think about that, and I, and I, and I look at guys like Simmons, and I think, well, gee, what do I have in common with him? Well, we had bad backs, and then the first thing that got hurt for Ben Simmons wasn't his back again. It was a left or right situation on, on a lower limb, and that's that's the truth, man. It's that yeah. there's some compensatory thing. There's some way he rehabbed or trained or whatever that probably put a little extra emphasis. Could it be on the right knee and he hurt his left, or could it be on, could it be on the knee he hurt, and, and that was just where the overemphasis was, but – I would like to know uh, more about that in a real game time sense. And I, and I wish instead of TNT spending, uh, you know, 50% of their halftime arguing about archaic ways to run offense through the post, they would have someone on who could break down what we just saw physically. Um, and so, yeah. you know, yeah, to your point, yes, it would make fans smarter. And ultimately it's going to make players' careers longer uh, if there's more of an emphasis on it. Yeah, I mean, it, just to close the loop on this, so you, everything that's going on with Zion Williamson now um, just seems yes. like such a yeah. black box health-wise. And I understand that, like, we cannot speak with a great degree of certainty on – his weight, and I understand that that's a challenge, and I understand sort of his body type. These are sort of tricky questions to talk about, but I don't see why an analyst can't look at the way he's running and be like, well, I don't like the way he's running because X, Y, Z. Look at what he's doing with his legs. Look at what he's doing with his blah, 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 and not make any conclusions. You know, I, I don't understand why we can't. I mean, that's all just us watching, and we just need to know where to watch. I, I don't understand why we can't. That that seems reasonable to speculate on or to analyze from afar or to analyze visually without then also having to say, like, I, I don't want to get into, like, a HIPAA violation or anything, like a condition <laughs> or his or his or his weight. You can just talk about, you know, the lumbering and what what it what that may or may not mean or if or even like, right. again, if someone was moving better or worse, better than before. I don't see why we can't. Why that's such a third rail in analysis, but you know, should be. I mean, like, and I guess like the last thing that um, that I'll say on like the physical health parts and and sort of how we judge this is it, it's not as good for people like us who aren't doctors. But there are people that exist to your point, like Coleman, who can do this right now and do it from a a place of uh, of you know authenticity and understanding. That will add to the game. So, you know, everyone rails against armchair psychologists and like the, I hate when Bill Simmons talks about body language bullshit and stuff like that because he's a writer, uh, a journalist and a podcaster. But if we had, you know, people who actually specialize in this getting the platform, I, I think that would be helpful. Um, and also it breaks stigmas. It, it breaks the, the Zion shit is so frustrating because. 
Because there's the eye test that every fan's doing because he's been such a public figure from his mixtapes in high school to the year he played at Duke to where he is now. And look, man, if if we were redrafting and you asked 100 people in the league, who would you take, number one, Morant or Zion? You could get a lot of John Morant picks there. You think so? I don't know about I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, John's got his own biomechanical challenges, too, because his course is, is so landing. weak. Landing is a real landing. challenge. Yeah. Dude, every time Zion jumps and lands, I expect him to get hurt. I'll say this, and I hopefully I'll eat my words 10 years from now, but I would sell every bit of Zion Williams stock I have. I don't think his body loses weight. I don't think his body trims down, and I don't think his physical presence on the court is better if and when he does trim down and lose weight. Like, he's short. And not a great shooter. And I know we relitigate all the issues he had pre-draft. But now I watch him. Who, he's a thicker guy. If you look at his high school highlights, which is less than two years ago, or about two years ago, compared to where he is now, not only is muscle definition down, but weight around his waist, weight in his legs, it's all there, man. And so this this league is not for people. It's for people with exceptional body builds that use their body the right way. And he is an exceptional body build that might be moving in the direction of the anti-basketball body build. And not just being a plotting runner and plotting jogger and all of that, but then you, we talk about like Carmelo Anthony right now is playing some pretty good basketball. He's also 100% different body shape than he was when he was at his peak prime in the NBA because he's in stay in the league shape. And in Zion's case, being at his peak performance, and being at a place where he can play physically, I'm not sure where they meet at an apex. I'd like to know, but I know that um, the inability, and I, I have other issues about watching him play. He's not a particularly great rebounder for someone who's playing power forward with his body build. He, he's second jump and third jump, which were just insane, at, even at Duke. It was like he was playing volleyball with himself. They, they're, they're worse now, too. And maybe it's because he's around a whole league of guys who are exceptional. Um, and because there's guys like Rudy Gobert and, uh, you know, playing against him. Um, but I don't know, man. I, I'm not wowed by Zion in, in almost any way when I watch. And I hope I eat all of those words, and I hope he ends up having a tremendous number one draft pick career. But I really struggle to see where this all blends together in the type of player that, that people want him to be. And maybe that's for an, another podcast. Yeah, there, there's a lot that'll go into that. He's had, obviously, some very strange, unique disruption circumstances that no other pro just the, the way the world is. And so, but no, he definitely looks heavier. There feels something going on. I, I think it's it's healthy for us to consider this a work in progress more so than anything. And, I mean, they do have Aaron Nelson, the Suns, the former Suns trainer, is with the Pelicans now. He has an incredible track record. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like something is definitely off now. I, I'm not ready to sell stock, though. I just think this is – I mean, it's a unique challenge that I think they've thrown what they can at as much as possible. Um, and if it's going to get solved, I don't think it's going to get – I don't think it's going to be out of a lack of effort on anyone's part in that organization. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, look, they're, they are – more than invested in the success of his body and therefore like his ability to play just even watching now they are for one reason or another we don't know what the end game motivation is maybe it's to get a better draft pick maybe you know and, and punt on this but look they're putting his health first 
above winning basketball games. Well, I, that. Yeah, I think that's smart. I mean, that makes sense to me. <laughs> like, I get why it's like kind of awkward because of all that stake is involved, but I don't think I think that the plan is smart. I think the concern is that, to your point, he did show up looking a lot less explosive after the pandemic, which makes you wonder what was going on. But it's it's I mean. It's not that different from some of the the challenges that the Sixers had with Embiid. I think. It's oh, totally. Similar. It's just different, man. Joe, it's different because Joel's seven foot two. You know, like the, Joel's body, and again, he he slipped in the draft because concerns with his health. Zion was the unanimous consensus, whatever number one pick, and was from the moment that he declared from Duke. Now. With Joel, the patience had to be from a pre-existing injury coming into the league, sitting out a year, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, he's seven foot two, and if he's not an explosive jumper or he's carrying a little bit more weight, it doesn't completely take away from all the other things he does. And Joel's just a much better shooter too. So with Zion, you have like a, a number of things, which is to say he needs to get more skilled at basketball. He needs, which is to say that he's a good passer and he's already, I, I think the thing I love most about Duke was his ability to get and go, grab and go and, and be a good passer and be a good ball handler, like a Barkley-ish player. But you haven't seen as much of that in the, in the NBA. Um, and then, and then look, man, he, he needs to be a more skilled player if he's in fact not going to be at his peak athleticism or peak physical you know, shape for a period of time. I don't think so he quibble too much with his offense. Defensively, I think it is a real issue. I mean, horrible defense. Offensively, I think he should be just fine. And hey, look, we're only three months away uh, removed from him just dominating the short minutes. So, for sure, I think it will be it will be good. I think it will be. I almost think it's better that they don't make the playoffs this year. That they can retool, and we try again next year. But I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, a lot of basketball talk. A lot of interesting stuff going on. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This is good to do, and uh, looking forward to uh, you know, next po- week's podcast with the playoff picture a little bit more in view. Oh, 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 oh.